I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. Yost, and welcome to Okay, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Today, I'd like to take on a subject that, well, it's not incredibly prominent these days, still seems to crop up here and there, usually in some of the most annoying of ways. I want to talk about the philosophy of objectivism. If you're not familiar Objectivism was a philosophical system that was created by a writer named Ayn Rand uh, throughout the 1940s, 1950s. It centered around four philosophical tenets, which included the objective nature of reality, the importance of reason, the supreme value of self-interest, and the importance of individual rights. Now, if that all sounds pretty good to you, don't get too excited. Rand's philosophy is a briar patch of heady justifications for lousy people to behave like jerks. I was churching it up a little bit back there just to set the stage. Let me admit right up front that I am not coming at this from a unbiased point of view. <laughs> I am very biased when it comes to Ayn Rand and what she tries to pass off as intellectual philosophy. It's safe to say I'm not a fan. And I'm not even going to touch a fair amount of what constitutes objectivism here either. Purely philosophical questions are best left to philosophy podcasts. The reason that I get to talk about objectivism, however, is that Rand extended her philosophizing into including a generally incoherent economic theory. And that's what we're going to be getting into. I do want to be clear 
the point of this episode isn't exclusively for me to bag on Ayn Rand and the economic aspects of objectivism, though that is a fringe benefit. The reason that I decided to do an episode on this subject is that I think that it dovetails nicely into a theme that we, we've touched on several times, which is that it's not uncommon for people when it comes to economics to have rigid opinions on the subject while failing to understand its fundamental ideas and or being ignorant of them entirely. Rand and her devotees talk a lot about capitalism, but it's clear that on the whole, they fail to understand how markets work. Capitalism serves them more as a kind of catchphrase that they can go back to, rather than a structural idea, the rules of which one has to contend with when trying to apply a philosophy. To objectivists, capitalism is, well, whatever they want it to be. And it's here where a rant bashing Ayn Rand gets to be not just enjoyable for me, but potentially beneficial too, because objectivists are, are not the only ones out there who do this. It's important to remember that just because someone cites capitalism as the reason they agree or disagree with a policy doesn't mean that it's true or that they even understand what capitalism is or how it works. Fun tip for, for those of you who get into economic arguments with friends, family, strangers. The next time the person you're arguing with invokes capitalism, ask them to define it. Not broadly. Ask them to give you the according to Hoyle definition. Now, admittedly, if they respond by saying, well, we got to get the government off our backs. Partial credit. Capitalism is simply a system where trade and industry are held and controlled privately, rather than by the state. But that doesn't mean that the government doesn't get to regulate business. Government regulation is not a desecration of capitalism. Just like anything, there can be beneficial regulations and there can be harmful, poorly conceived regulations. But the idea of regulation isn't anathema to capitalism. And in fact, it can sometimes bolster the system. In my experience, what most people describe when they try to explain what they think capitalism is, is what is what could be termed anarcho-capitalism. Uh, as its name suggests, it's basically anarchy. Uh, a completely unrestricted, unpoliced, unregulated market. As I often tell those people who advocate for the idea that such a system is is the true nature when people try to call that the true nature of capitalism uh, I, I i tend to tell them that they've never experienced such a system and if they did they would hate it the problem with anarcho-capitalism is that in it there are a few winners and a lot of losers so the odds are that you're going to be one of the losers. There's also another term for a, a true anarcho-capitalist system, which we've talked about in earlier episodes, and that would be a Hobbesian state of nature. Proponents of unregulated capitalism 
would deny that, but, well, we'll get into why they're wrong uh, about that as we go on. I'm drifting a little, so to return to the point, while I'm going to pick on objectivism here, like, a lot, rather than being a specific indictment of Rand, I wanted to talk about this because more broadly, there is this regular issue of people misunderstanding what capitalism or market economics really is. And and objectivism is just a, a nice example of that phenomenon from which I can make that broader point. So let's get into it, shall we? In preparing my research for this episode, I, I had to go down a, a pretty irritating rabbit hole of, of fawning reviews of Rand's writing, as well as the, the modern devotees of objectivism. It was grueling. While doing this, I came across a video of a lecture uh, given by a, a man named Dale Halling uh, that was posted to the website for the Atlas Society. And I'm going to pick on Mr. Halling here because in the lecture he provides a pretty comprehensive version of objectivist economic ideas. First of all, I think that it's important to point out that, that neither Dale Halling nor Ayn Rand had any kind of real background in economics. Of course, that doesn't stop them from having firm opinions on how economics works. In the case of Mr. Halling, from dismissing out of hand the work and theories of every, every famous economist throughout history. The notes on the video of his presentation start by saying, quote, no school of economic thought is consistent with objectivism. This is very true. It's also the seed from which all of the problems with objectivism derive. You've got to kind of ask yourself if no economist agrees with you. Maybe you're on the wrong path. We have to remember, though, first and foremost, that objectivism is a philosophy. And as we've talked about before, philosophies uh, can be subjective. You can live your life by a philosophy, and that's fine. But in the end, it is a subjective idea that you like, that works for you, and not necessarily universally true for everyone. The problem occurs in objectivism because by its very nature, it insists that it is not subjective, that it is objective. It's where they get the name. That there is an objective reality and that objectivism is exclusively correct. Therefore, anything that disagrees with any part of objectivism must, without exception, be wrong. So from an intellectual standpoint, we're not off to a great start here. Believing that there is an objective reality isn't so much the issue either. It's the level of dogmatism that comes with that belief. The advantage of having a more subjective philosophy is that you, you naturally have to be open to other ideas and interpretations. When you believe that there is one answer and that you already have it, you're not ever going to be open to the possibility that you might be wrong. Again, I'm not going to wade too deep into the debate over objective reality, because 
it's not all that relevant to economics. But I think it's worth pointing out because it explains of the a, a lot of the nonsense that is to come here. So the thrust of Mr. Hollings' presentation is centered around the idea that, that economists of, of, all, of all stripes and from all eras don't actually understand the fundamental truth about economics. But he and Ayn Rand do. One of the key problems that Holling points out is that he and Rand herself take issue with the way that economics define, or that economists define the study of economics. In his lecture, he says this. Some of our difficulties start with the very beginning of economics, uh, one of which he complained about in capitalism, the unknown ideal, is that economists attempt to study and devise a social system without any reference to man. And I think this is in part because of the very definition of economics and the one that she analyzes in capitalism, the unknown ideal, is very similar to this one from Cliff Notes, which is economics is a study of how society allocates scarce resources and goods. And I think that's the one I was taught when I went to school. But if you think about that definition, it's inherently sort of a collectivist definition. And where did these scarce resources and goods come from? There have been some attempts to put man or people into the process, but if you look at the definition carefully, you still see it has sort of a collectivist bent. Now this is both shocking and unsurprising somehow. It's unsurprising because objectivism is inherently a self-focused philosophy. It's the reason that it's so tempting for people to climb on board with. And the idea that an objectivist would have to admit to any kind of reliance on anyone else is, well, it just doesn't square with a dogma that insists on the, the hollow empowerment of yourself. In objectivism, other people cannot play a critical role in your success because if they did, you might have to consider the fact that you may owe some of your accomplishments to their efforts, and, and that's just not something that Rand would allow for. Now, that's fine as a philosophy. I wouldn't agree with that, but if you want to view the world in that way, you're free to do so. The problem comes when you try to insist that your philosophy is so objectively correct that it applies universally. And when you try to apply that kind of philosophy to economics, it just falls apart. My issue with even entertaining objectivist ideas of economics is that what, what Mr. Halling is saying here, that economic philosophy, in order to be correct, must focus on the individual, is that I can't run even the most basic of economic models without at least two people. When they teach basic microeconomics in school, one of the earliest models that they show you is a series of graphs that describe what is called a pure exchange economy. Pure exchange economy is one where there is no production to worry about. There are no complicating variables. It's just two people. Each one has complete control over one commodity. And the commodities can be anything. Fish and berries, chocolate and coconuts. It, it doesn't matter. Person one has X number of one item and person two has X number of the other. 
in this economy, both people want some of the other one's commodities. So they're going to agree to an exchange. Where this becomes an economy is in the two of them determining what the rate of exchange will be. After all, chocolate may be rarer or, or harder to get than coconuts. So it may not be a one-to-one -one swap. Determining the exchange rate between those uh, items involves a, a fair amount of math and figuring out where the demand curves for each uh, person intersect because one of the best truisms I've ever heard is that when two curves intersect it always means something in, an, in, a, in economics. This will give you a contract curve and that'll lead to a Pareto optimal exchange but by the way any terms in there that you didn't understand, don't worry, there will be future episodes about all of them. The point being, what I've just described there is, is the most basic economic version of a market. Markets only exist when an exchange is being made. And in order to make an exchange, you need at least two people. Without that exchange, economics doesn't exist. It is the therefore by its very nature a social science now if you want to be ludicrously reductionist you could call that collectivism but let's not be that silly the idea that we depend on our interactions and exchanges with each other doesn't somehow lead us down a road to communism it's just recognizing a point in fact I've talked before about the, the myth of the individualist, that no one is truly self-reliant because at some point or another in your life, you're going to do something or use something that required another person. But in order to accept certain parts of objectivism, you do have to delude yourself into the idea that everyone must be, everyone and everything must be focused on the individual. The truth is, Economics doesn't really allow for that. Rand complains that economics doesn't reduce down to cover the idea of the individual. And even though it does, I'll concede that only so far as saying that the most basic unit of economics is not a person. The most basic unit of economics is an exchange. And an exchange, say it with me, requires two people. It's why economics is a social science. It is studying interactions between people. So Holling goes on to <coughs> critique uh, economists throughout history. He criticizes Friedrich Hayek for not respecting the individual's ability to create success because Hayek had written about the failure of central planning in an economy. Now Hayek was talking about how central planning will often lead to bad results because for it to work, the central planner would either need perfect information, which they would not have, or they would have to infringe upon the liberties of people to impose the conditions necessary to make their planning work properly. Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, was an indictment of fascism and communism. But I guess that doesn't cut it for objectivists, because Hayek never clarified that they were all special individuals. 
Holling then moves on to Ludwig von Mises, uh, where he makes a statement that demonstrates his total lack of understanding of, of even the most basic vocabulary definitions in economics. Ludwig von Mises is probably best known for his ideas on praxeology. But he also, he was an Austrian, and he, like all the Austrians, said that values and prices in economics are subjective. And when they say subjective, they mean totally disconnected from reality. Again, if you talk to many Mises people, they will say, no, that's not what he means. What they mean is that each person decides for themselves. But we know that's not actually what they mean because A, they tell us that, but also because he's very clear. He doesn't think a scientific or an objective ethics is possible. And if you don't think you can find an objective set of values and ethics, you certainly don't think you can find an objective set of values in economics. Now, first of all, if your philosophy is one that advocates laissez-faire economics, as objectivism does, and you feel that you've got beef with Ludwig von Mises, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Von Mises was one of the most Austrian of the Austrian school of economics, and advocated for as laissez-faire as you can imagine. But apparently that's not good enough for objectivists. Let's also deal with the fact that the term subjective doesn't mean detached from reality. It means that I place a value on a given item that is based entirely on my own preferences, and you place a value, likely a different value, on that same item based on your preferences. Those differing values are how we get market demand curves and elasticity of demand. And of course, the fact that Mr. Holling here keeps convoluting the idea of value being the price you associate with something and values being the ideals you hold to be true, he seems to be under the impression that subjective value means that people don't have any rigid moral code. But hey, he's got his definition of, of economics from Cliff's Notes, so he must be an expert, right? This goes on and on and on. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman isn't moral enough for objectivists. And because Friedman once admitted that he could never be sure of being right, uh, Holling feels that such an admission would destroy all of uh, both ethics and law. If you're trying to put that one together in your head, spare yourself the frustration. Holling has to feel that way because he believes in a philosophy that not only insists that there is a right answer to everything, but that objectivism is that right answer. So, if you have the humility to allow that you can never be totally sure that you're right, then you're pulling a bunch of bricks out of the Jenga tower of certainty that objectivists have built for themselves, so he must be wrong about possibly being wrong. Uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, Thomas Malthus, all wrong about the source of wealth. He goes after one of my personal favorite economists, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, who pushed the idea of the importance of creative destruction in the economy. 
We'll cover Schumpeter's ideas in detail sometime in the future, but according to Holling, creative destruction either doesn't exist or isn't really a factor in the economy because you can't use it to explain the Industrial Revolution. And no, I'm not being overly reductionist when it comes to Holling's logic here. That is nearly verbatim. Uh, if you want to check my work, you can find this lecture on YouTube by searching Dale Holling, H-A-L-L-I-N-G. Uh, uh, but I really think that you can probably find something better to do with the hour of your life that it would take to watch it. Anyway, Holling tests each economist's idea by trying to use it to explain the Industrial Revolution. It's a bit of a theme for him. And this is his way of showing that these great thinkers are all wrong. Now, he keeps things pretty vague and pretty loose, so he can dismiss them out of hand without getting into greater intellectual detail. With Schumpeter, he simply asks that if new firms entering the market and forcing old firms to either step up their game or die away, if that was a driver in the economy, then why didn't the Industrial Revolution take place a thousand years earlier? I don't know what that question is supposed to mean, but Holling seemed pretty confident when he said it. His takedown of John Maynard Keynes is especially illustrative of the level of expertise we're dealing with here, in that Holling feels that Keynes's idea of, of there being a lack of demand in the economy, uh, that it that was easily disproved because prior to the Industrial Revolution, when people were living at or below the subsistence level, there was no lack of demand for things. If you've been listening to the Wealth of Nations episode, you, you may remember that uh, Smith covered this fairly early on. Demand is not the critical factor in the economy. Effective demand is. Meaning that your demand for a luxury car is only meaningful if you had the money on you to potentially buy that car and then chose to buy it or not. Thankfully, someone actually calls hauling out on this during the Q&A portion because I'll admit that at that point I was yelling at my computer quite a bit. So I covered that to, to demonstrate the fast and loose understanding that an objectivist like Holling tends to apply to actual economic theory in order to, finger quotes, disprove it. Let's transition now into what they actually believe. Holling clarifies his position like this. With that background, I want to start putting together a, a school or science of economics that I think is consistent with Ayn Rand's ideas. And I think we should start from the very beginning where she complained about, which was the definition. And I propose the definition that economics is the study of how man obtains the things he needs to live. Now, this violates most people's definition because it's not a social definition. It's a, after all, economics is a social science. Um, but I think, actually, there's no reason that it needs to be a social science. And what this shows is it applies to a person on a deserted island. It applies to Robinson Crusoe. And Robinson Crusoe, every day when he gets up, he has to decide, am I going to go fishing? Am I going to go hunting? Am I going to plant stuff? Am I going to dig a well? 
So he's making trades, and if he's not successful enough, then he doesn't gain enough calories and he dies. And so his currency, so to speak, or his accounting, is his, are the calories he needs in order to live. And so this definition ties economics to reality, to biological reality of human beings. Now this definition not only demonstrates to me that Dale Holling has never actually read any kind of text on economics, but also that he's never actually read Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Well, yes, Crusoe is stranded on an island. He eventually frees uh, uh, and teams up with Friday. And later, with the help of a few other castaways and a ship of mutineers, is able to escape the island. I've already covered how economics is a social science, but I will take on Hollings' definition and say that if you think economics is the study of how man obtains those things he needs to live, okay. But the answer is through exchange and cooperation. So your whole individualist idea is kind of busted there. He goes on to further define the driving force in the economy this way. So what's the source of economic growth? Well, it's inventions. And this really should not be surprising to fans of Ayn Rand. Man's main survival tool is his ability to reason. But he can't just think about his problems, he's actually got to create something. And when he creates something to solve an objective problem, that's an invention. Now, you also do production or really reproduction. You recreate the invention over and over to disseminate it. That gets you to some maybe optimum level, but if you want to continue to increase your standard of living, you've got to create new things that are more efficient and more effective. Of course, as an objectivist, this idea should come as no surprise to anyone. It should also come as no surprise that Dale Halling makes a living as a patent attorney. Invention, or increased technology, is, ac is actually a driver in, of economic growth, but Halling uses the term invention for a very specific reason. He needs to use the word, because invention is the act of an individual. He practic practically dismisses the importance of production and dissemination because those acts require other people. He wants to frame this in terms of invention because it elevates the individual achievement and ignores the role of society. Now, economists talk about this kind of thing in, in terms of advancing technology because that advancing is a social act. If you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around that, think of it this way. You invent something, something really cool and groundbreaking. This is 2018, so let's assume that it's some kind of app that does something revolutionary. Good for you. But while you invented that app, and that was an achievement, you didn't invent the computer that you used to code the app, or the phone on which people use the app or the network through which people download the app. All that was done by other people. It's only through their efforts that your invention was possible. And we can extend that in the other direction, in that your app is going to allow for future inventors to develop their own new things. 
and thus only through your effort will their inventions be possible. This kind of chain of inventions is, is what I mean when I talk about technology being a social thing. If you existed truly alone in the world, actually alone on a desert island, you would have to invent everything yourself, starting with fire and basic tools. You can't take a person on a blank slate and have them suddenly invent the telephone. They would need to invent all the things along the way that led to the telephone being possible. Plus, in such a situation, who are you even going to talk to on the phone? The chaining together of inventions is, in their own kind of cause and effect relationship, is how we know that the rate of progress is increasing exponentially. As each successive invention makes life easier and work more efficient, it makes creating the next invention easier. We are all effectively standing on the shoulders of everyone who came before us. But of course, an objectivist can't admit to that. It might be seen as if they owed something to those people. The final piece I'm going to use from Dale Hollings' lecture is an odd track that he, he gets off on, um, being the objectivist, fan of capitalism that he claims to be, yet uh, spending a fair amount of time criticizing the idea of perfect competition. Now, perfect competition is the ideal of market economics. It, it's basically a state wherein, due to perfect information and no barriers to entry, a market gets to a point where monopoly is impossible and the price of the good is being entirely determined by market forces. In short, perfect competition is market economics perfected. This is what Dale Halling thinks of it. My idea of perfect competition, if you want to visualize it, is this picture right here. And I see it, that picture, as a bunch of rice farmers in China during the Cultural Revolution, I don't know if that's really true. They're all wearing the same clothes, using the same technology, not, using the, not allowed to do anything different, and they're all producing the same rice. You know what that's a recipe for? That's a re recipe for economic disaster and starvation. Perfect competition is a theory of altruism and or slavery masquerading as a scientific theory. Again, we should not be surprised by this. And it's where we get into the really devious part of objectivism. Halling feels that perfect competition is some kind of collectivist trap because he fails to understand the fundamental truth of free market economics. The truth being that it always favors the consumer, not the producer. Free markets can make a producer wealthy, but only so long as they bend to the will of the consumer and offer a better product at a lower price. But that idea doesn't work for objectivists because it doesn't involve deifying the producer. It actually makes life pretty hard for them. What Dale Holling wants is to invent something and then have us throw a ticker tape parade in his honor for having graced us with his invention. He wants to never have to 
be forced into a position where he's going to have to continue to invest money in improving his invention. He's never going to, he wants to receive the maximum reward for it. So he never wants to have to lower his price. What he wants is a rigged system. He calls it a free market, but it's, it's really designed just to make sure that he can get as much money as possible. And this is why when you apply Ayn Rand and her writing to something like economics, the whole thing collapses on itself. What Dale Halling is suggesting is that the ideal form of capitalism is total monopoly on the part of the inventor. It's a kind of plutocracy that usually leads to violent revolution. But it's also what makes objectivism so appealing to some because it trumpets their efforts and would allow them to reap nothing but rewards from them. It's also a terrible way to run an economy. The consumer-focused nature of market economic uh, forces, you know, it, it creates a system of constant improvement. It fosters further invention, because if you can make a better version of something, you can beat out your competitors. It drives the chain of technological improvement constantly. But if you're wealthy, you may not want to keep working for that. You may feel like you've already done your share. You probably want to just sit back and watch the money roll in. And anyone or anything encroaching on that is out to get you. That's the the seductive nature of objectivism tells you that there's a kind of steady state of your your wealth and status that can be achieved. In fact, it tells you that that kind of steady state should be achieved. It tells you that that is the definition of capitalism. But it's not. If we look at Ayn Rand's writing directly, we see this kind of, of, of playing to people with a, a certain mindset everywhere throughout it. If you read Atlas Shrugged, and I cannot encourage you more to not read that book. There are so many other books out there, better books, books that are actually worth your time. To spare you, I'll sum it up. In the book, the wealthy and productive business owners, the job creators, are beset on all sides from the greedy, parasitic workers and the greedy and parasitic government. They aren't appreciated for their critical role in solely driving the whole economy, so they decide that they're going to go on strike. They all leave and head to a place created by John Galt, where they can form a perfect society while the world they left behind descends into chaos. So, a few things there. Rand spends a fair amount of the book lauding her protagonists, like Hank Rudin, the owner of steel mills, where he's invented a new kind of steel, which is more durable than any other before. Well, as we've discussed, well, while Rand feels that Reardon is deserving of all praise and financial gain from this new steel, uh, she forgets that Reardon didn't invent steel. He didn't invent the process for making and refining it. He didn't invent the process or or technology for mining iron to make it into steel. Reardon improved, and if the book is to be believed, perfected the process. 
for which he should be compensated. But he didn't invent it in a vacuum. Second, the Reardon steel that is produced and the trains that are built using it aren't made by Reardon himself. He's an industrialist. He doesn't do that kind of thing. Ayn Rand constantly forgets the critical role of the labor force in her writings. Yes, Reardon came up with the idea, but it would have simply remained an idea in his head without people there to, you know, actually build it. The fact of economics, as we've been seeing in, in some of the more recent Wealth of Nations chapters, is that the the relationship between ownership and labor is critical to driving the economy. The tension created between the interests of workers and the interests of management it creates an equilibrium price for labor. And we can't forget that while Rand typically refers to labor as parasites, they make up the bulk of Reardon's customers. They ride his trains. Without them, he can invent all the stuff he wants. There won't be anyone there to buy it. The fact of the matter is that while both the holders of stock and labor are critical to the economy, without the holders of stock, we would be massively less efficient as an economy. But some sort of barter system between subsistence hunters would still limp on. Without labor, there would be nothing. Truly, though, the economy needs both, and the symbiotic relationship between the two. That's how a market system works. Rand insists that the productive members of society have a right to keep the product of their labor and that any infringement on that is collectivism. But that's just one of many false dichotomies that she creates to make her point. The wealthy keeping every everything, or brutal collectivism, are not the only options here. I think that Rand and her devotees just have a lack of understanding about how capitalism, how, how the economy works. The, like I had said before, they use it as a catchphrase rather than really trying to comprehend it. It sounds good to say that you're in favor of laissez-faire capitalism. But what she often describes sounds more like economic anarchy to me. Except only the good parts of economic anarchy. And that leads to another problem with their philosophy when it's applied to economics. The inventor, the creator, owes nothing to the world around him other than his creation. But if anyone were to infringe upon that creation, the creator wants there to be repercussions. It's the, con the contradiction that happens when you go too far into laissez-faire territory. Listen, government oversight and regulation are not always the answer. Oftentimes, Government regulations can make things worse, especially when it's ill-conceived and poorly applied. But to those who think that the government needs to get out of the way of business, don't forget that business insists that the government be there at all times to protect them. The government offers patents to inventors, which has always been meant to stimulate invention in our country. But more than that, the government offers protections for that patent. If you patent your invention, 
and someone rips it off, you have a system that allows you to sue them, get them to stop, and, and pay you restitution for ripping you off. That system only exists because of the government. In a extreme laissez-faire system, there would not be a patent office, no less any sort of system uh, that would allow you to, to get repercussions for having your invention stolen. Uh, there simply wouldn't be the, the money or the structure for that. One of my biggest gripes with objectivists is it's that kind of hypocrisy. They want the parasites and the government to get off their back, but the minute they scrape their knee, they call for mommy. Rand is technically correct with her insistence on the pursuit of self-interest. It's, it's one of the key tenets of objectivism. Where she goes astray is that she feels that the only way to get the benefits from such a system is for her and others to achieve their self-interest. And that's not quite right. Adam S Smith says something similar, but the difference between the two is that Smith sees the best result happening from everyone pursuing their own self-interest, not from actually achieving it. In a market economy, everyone is pulling, trying to get the things that they want, and we all wind up pulling against each other, because there are a finite number of resources and we can't all have everything that we want. The benefit of us all pulling against each other isn't that if we just pull hard enough we'll win and everyone else will lose, it's that we wind up creating an equilibrium where everyone gets most of what they want at a high quality and a very low price. That's a market economy. That's capitalism. Ayn Rand wrote books that appeal to individuals who don't feel that the world appreciates them enough. And she disguises this very simple tactic in philosophical and pseudo-intellectualist nonsense to make it seem more important, more meaningful than that. And if it was just a way of thinking, I wouldn't take objection to it. I wouldn't take, you know, an hour to talk about it on my podcast. People can subscribe to any personal beliefs that they want. But when you try to bring that into the sphere of economics, when you think that you can impose that personal fantasy on the economy and still have it function, well, let me tell you why you're wrong. As always, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, and I'm sure somebody out there will, uh, come on out and join the Facebook group. Uh, you can search, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, or... If you just check the show notes, I always leave the link to it uh, in there. Uh, Coming out, join the conversation, leave a comment, uh, throw out a suggestion for a future episode, yell at me in all caps, uh, good, good with any of those. Uh, if you're not on Facebook, you can still contact me. Uh, you can email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, I know it's a big one, uh, and uh, no punctuation, no comma, no apostrophe. Be sure to take a minute and uh, give that podcast a, a rating, preferably five stars, unless you're an objectivist, and then, you know, I don't know, just keep it to yourself. Um, 
but yeah, hit, uh, hit us up with a, a rating and uh, a review. Always happy to hear what people think about the show. And if there are improvements uh, you think I can make, I'm, I'm happy to make them. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, I do have another podcast out there where my fiance and I talk about planning our wedding. It's called, appropriately enough, Let's Plan a Wedding. Uh, and of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back uh, next episode with part two of chapter 10 of book one of The Wealth of Nations. Thank you, Adam Smith. Uh, we'll be covering inequalities occasioned by the policies of Europe. Riveting stuff. It is. It, it, it actually is. Check out the episode. You'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.